is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. And there were in the same country shepherds, abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid, and the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. Yes, it is Charlie Brown. Uh, Matt, I want to thank you for that communion meditation. I mean, I, I know you said you got that from your favorite pastor on social media. I don't remember ever saying that, though. It's really weird. I'll have to go back and look. I'm, I'm sure I must have at some point. It sounded really smart. Um, I hope by now we're all on the same page. Uh, each week, I'm coming up here in the month of December with a, another interesting Christmas sweater on. Uh, th this one, you'll notice, says, Let It Glow. May give you some illusion as to maybe the Christmas movie that we are going to be discussing today. Each week I come up here in these silly sweaters because I want to tell you that perception matters. Right? And not just the way we present ourselves to the world, which that does matter. Right? When we say that we want to reach the world for Jesus, when the world looks at you, do they actually see him? Right? Do, do they see what you're against or, or are you known for the things that you are for? But it also is very important the way in which we perceive the world. The way that we take in and the way that we process the, the overflow, the, the, the abundance of information that is given to us every single day, that matters as well. If you've been joining us for the last few weeks, again, this, this introduction may sound repetitive to you, forgive me, but I know that there's some people who have not, so I will repeat myself. I know that if you are here and you're just joining us, maybe for the first time again, your first question might have been, why is the preacher wearing that ridiculous sweater? Why is there a picture of Buddy the Elf up on the screen behind him? Right? I want to assure you that it's not because we do not take Christmas seriously. I want to assure you it's not because what you'll hear preached here is a gospel of magic reindeer. It's because I want all of you to have the ability to find real joy this Christmas season, in spite of everything that the world wants to throw at you. You know, Christmas is probably the biggest holiday that is celebrated in our culture. Christmas is celebrated by almost everyone that you will meet. Christmas is even celebrated by those who deny that there ever was a baby born in a manger to a virgin. But they will still celebrate Christmas. Very often, though, they won't call it Christmas, right? They call it Xmas. And to us as people who have called upon the name of Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior, right, when we see his name removed from this celebration, it upsets us very often. 
I, I know often when we see people just completely walk past Christ and remove him from Christmas, very often it tends to steal a little bit of my, my joy. I know for a lot of people, because they see this so often repeated over and over, that they start to see boogeymen hiding behind every Christmas tree. Right? We have this tendency to become overprotective of our faith. But it's understandable. I related to this. Um, you probably saw my one daughter is walking around in a giant gold hat today because it's her birthday. I, I don't know where she gets it from, this willingness to be in the spotlight. She must get it from her mother, I guess. Um, <laughs> But it's her birthday today, and for this illusion, I'm not going to use Blythe for this example, but, but let's just say if I had a son, and let's just say his name was Junior, and it was his birthday today, and I was going to go to Kroger's on the way home, and I was going to pick Junior up a birthday cake. I ordered the cake weeks ago. I told him exactly what type of cake, what color icing. I told them exactly what I wanted it to say on the cake. If when I got there this afternoon, the, the cake inscription, it looked beautiful, but it read, Happy Birthday... X. I'd complain, right? right? I would think you would as well. We wouldn't just take that cake that we ordered with happy birthday X written on it, take it up to the cash register and pay for it. What I would hope that we would do is politely, you know, maybe we'd walk over to the bakery counter and we'd ring the bell and we'd call the baker over and we'd say, I, th I think you missed something. Right? I don't know if maybe you read it wrong. I'm not sure what happened. But, but we're not celebrating the birthday today of some random X. Just some Mark. Right? We're, selling, we're celebrating the birthday of my son, Junior, who I love. I want to see his name on his own birthday cake. Junior's awesome. Right? Don't you know that? The question I would have to ask myself is, why would the baker do this? Right? Why would the baker assume that you could just put an X, a mark in the spot, it wouldn't matter, that, that I would not want to see Junior's name? And the only logical reason he would, the only assumption that I can make, it's because he's never met Junior before. He has no idea how awesome Junior really is. He has no idea how knowing Junior makes your life better. The peace that it brings you, the joy that it brings you. So why am I so surprised that to the baker... An X will serve the job just as well. The cake is still delicious. It's all the ingredients that I asked him to put into it. The icing is still the right colors. Everything is just as I asked. Right to the baker, he might say, no harm, no foul. You asked for a delicious birthday cake and I handed you one. Perception again matters in my reaction to this situation. Right, my one choice could be is, is I could get angry and I could get defensive. I could organize protests against Kroger's for daring to insult Junior in such a way. I could make picket signs and I could stop around and I could yell as loud as I could. I could go on Facebook. I could tell everyone I knew, don't buy a cake from Kroger's because they turned Junior's name into an X. Or the other option would be is I could see this as an opportunity it's a chance for me to tell someone else about my son that I love, to tell them about Junior's life. Somebody who had never had an opportunity to meet Junior and learn about him is now going to have a chance to. Again, I can choose to be angry, and the baker will just see some sort of zealot who's trying to cost him his job. Or I can choose joy. I can choose to push people away, or I can choose to draw them closer with love. 
and with grace. And if I'm willing to do that while standing on the truth, it doesn't really take any special skill for any of us to do this. It really is only a willingness that we need to see this happen. It's a willingness that at its core will come from this idea to stop seeing the other as an enemy, but start seeing the other as an opportunity, as someone who needs desperately to meet Junior. Or I'm sorry, to meet Jesus. But again, perception matters. So to help train our perception during this season of glad tidings, what we've been looking at is, is classic Christmas movies. These movies that we all know and that we love. Even these movies that, that the, when the men and women who created them had no intention of sharing the gospel, had no intention of, of reflecting God's word, we can still see it that way if we choose to. It's why I say, to me, it's less important why something was made. It's more important how I choose to absorb it and let it into my brain. If we allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, if we know God's word well enough, what we'll see is that we will automatically start to see God's will all around us. In the news, we'll see his will. When we turn on our television, we'll see his will. We read a book, we'll see it. Even in the Christmas movies that we watch, we will see God's will. So it brings me to an important question for you. I know most of us, I bet everybody in this room, you know Dasher and Dancer. You, of course, have heard of Prancer and Vixen. Who could forget Comet? Who could forget Cupid? We're all familiar with Donner and Blitzen. But do you recall the most famous reindeer of all? Da -dun -dun -dun. Rudolph, of course you remember him. You would be hard-pressed anywhere to find a reindeer that is more famous than Rudolph. We all know Rudolph's story, and we know Rudolph's story, most of us, from the claymation classic movie, right, where Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer stars alongside of an odd little elf, this strange little elf who decided he no longer wants to build toys, he wants to be a dentist. And what's interesting, though, is even though this strange little elf doesn't want to build toys, he wants to be a dentist, Rudolph is probably the stranger of the duo, you see, Rudolph is a reindeer by birth. Rudolph is born to really good stock. Right? He's got a nice mom and dad, a nice reindeer father who, who, who helps guide Santa's sleigh. Rudolph should have everything laid out in front of him pretty easy, but it soon becomes apparent that Rudolph is not like the other reindeer. Rudolph sticks out a little bit. His appearance is not what you would expect from a good reindeer. Even by magical North Pole standards, a reindeer with a glowing red nose is unorthodox. To all the other reindeers, right, the, the reindeers that have always been in charge, who have always been the protectors of, 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 of the Christmas tradition, they don't embrace Rudolph because he's different. They call him names, like Pinocchio. They don't let him play in any reindeer games, like Monopoly. They write him off as a misfit. To them, Rudolph is nothing more than a distraction to their important work. All these other reindeers, they, they thought they understood the mission that was in front of them. 
It was the mission they've been working on completing their entire life. Before them, it's the same mission that their father and their father's fathers have always completed, and they've always completed it in the same exact way. For as long as any of them could remember, Santa's reindeer all looked the same. They all acted the same. Right? They probably went to the same schools. And again, they were the guardians of the great Christmas tradition of flying reindeer. And someone who did not fit the mold, right? someone who, who wasn't going to fit into this perfect shape of what one of Santa's reindeers should look like or act like, they had no such time for a misfit like that. But you know the movie. You know that by the end of it, it's Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer, that will go down in history like George Washington. Because when all the other reindeer, when they all laugh and they look down at Rudolph because he did not fit the mold that they tried to force him into, it turns out that Rudolph was actually born at just the right time, wasn't he? Rudolph came into the world right before this Christmas was going to come where, where a storm was on the horizon. He came into the world at this exact moment that Santa would need him to light a way to clear a path in the darkness, to be the tip of the spear that would, that would forge a path for what was to come, Christmas. Listen, whenever I see Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I can't help it, right? Because my perception and my worldview leads me to immediately remember another misfit who did not fit the mold, who did not look like what you think a man should look like who had such an important job, uh, another misfit who, who those who should have known better, right, who, who, who had been filling the role of guardian, of spiritual leadership for generations, that they just disregarded him as a weirdo. I, I think of one particular man from our Gospels who had a very similar job to Rudolph's. It was his job to come and clear a path. This is what he was born for to make a way for precious cargo that the world would need if it was ever going to find true joy. So when the world sees Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I see John the Baptist. We're going to be reading a little bit about John's story from Matthew chapter 3 today. So I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, your apps on your iPad or your phone, open there now. If you don't, it's okay. Everything will be right behind me on the screen. And we start today, we're going to look at the first six verses of Matthew chapter 3. Here's what it says. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair, and a leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Matthew is kind enough to give us a very clear picture of who this John fellow was, right? What he's doing, why he's doing it, and tells us a little bit about how John looks how John carries himself. I, I think what you should have heard there is that this John fellow is a bit of an eccentric. He, he's a bit of a character. The man that was just described, he would not have fit into the description that most of the people of that time would have thought a religious teacher.
teacher should be. John lived out in the wilderness of Judea, Matthew says. So, so John was not in the city. He was not by the temple. He was out in the desert area south of Jerusalem. He says John wore a garment of camel hair with a leather belt. Now, it's been quite a while since I, I, I rode a camel at a petting zoo, but I don't remember their fur being the softest and most luxurious. John wasn't dressed in any type of priestly robe. His appearance was rough. His appearance made him stand out. His appearance would not have been attractive to many people. But his appearance would have been exactly what you would expect from a man who lived in the desert, who ate locusts for dinner, who stole honey from wild bees for dessert. This John fellow was a rough man. And this rough and this tough man, he had a very important job. Matthew tells us what that is as well. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah. It's from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It says again, a voice cries... In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And when we think of John, we call John the baptizer, right? But that's not how Matthew actually introduces John. If you look at the very first verse of chapter 3, you see there, right, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came baptizing in the wilderness of Judea, right? No, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Matthew summarizes for us, summarizes for us what the message is that John preached. Again, this rough and rugged man clothed, clothed in camel fur, not, not in elegant fabrics. This man who had a belly full of locusts. People would come and they, and they would hear him preach. And when they came, they would hear a simple, but they would hear a powerful message. Repent. This John, he certainly must have had some God-given charisma about him. He doesn't look like someone who people would necessarily want to follow or want to emulate. No one came and saw his fashion sense and said, man, I I want to look just like John. No one came and saw how he was living and what he was eating and said, man, that, that John fellow, he's certainly doing better than I am at home. Man, maybe I should make some changes to my life. And then on top of it all, his message, when he opened his mouth, it wasn't one giving people high fives. He opened his mouth and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But the people, they kept coming The people would leave the Jordan River after hearing John and they would go home and they would tell their friends about this this madman they saw living in the wilderness. Maybe like their forefathers would have generations ago. And this man was preaching this message that you just had to come out and hear. The scripture says that people were coming from far and wide, from all over, to hear this man preach a message that would make straight a path for the coming of something that was greater than him. And again, not a message that was full of hugs and full of kisses and full of pats on the back for for all the good Jewish boys and girls for the good job they have done. Again, the message that he would hammer home with them was repent. And repent is a word that we don't necessarily understand very well in today's world often. It was also kind of often misunderstood in John's time as well. In John's time, though, the reason was is the, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, or the Romans... Their idea of repentance was something very different 
than it was to the Jews. Right, to the, to the Greek, to the Gentile, repentance purely was a change of mind or a change of attitude. It was very much an internal change. But in the Jewish context, repentance always took on a sense of a radical change in action as well. Right, in the Jewish tradition, an internal change would cause an actual change to your way of life. It would be the result of a complete change of thought and attitude in regards to how you view sin and how you view righteousness. You often hear it described in the church today as turning away from sin and heading in the other direction. Or maybe you've heard somebody say, go against the flow. Go against the flow of the world because of a real, true, genuine change of heart. A genuine change to the way that your mind views the sinful world around you. When you repent, sin should no longer bring you happiness. When you repent, the things that you used to find pleasure in, you should now find distasteful. Maybe even repulsive. Again, when we think of John, we think of baptizing. But if we do that, we forget that before the baptism came a call to repent. That's the part we forget too easily. The message that John brought, it was not complicated. It was not tricky. There were no parables here. John preached a simple message. The kingdom of God is here. In other words, the time is now, people. This can't wait. This is urgent. This is something you have to listen to right now and you have to respond to immediately. You need to repent from your sin. You need to be washed by the water in baptism. But without repentance, then what are we washing away? Right? John did not bring crowds out to the Jordan River just so that they could get wet. The God-given charisma, his message that drew people close so that he could plead with them, the message was, repent of your sinful ways. And they would come and they would confess and they would repent and they would be baptized. So the next time you see Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I'm willing to bet in the next seven days or so, you're going to see him a lot. I have an inflatable one on my front yard, so I see one every single day. But the next time you see Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the question that you have to ask yourself is, have I repented? Not have I confessed my sin, not have I been baptized, but have I repented? Have I actually turned away from sin in my life? Do, do the sinful things in this world around me, do I still kind of have a taste for them? I'm not saying sanctification, and, and sanctification, the process of trying to become more like Christ, I'm not saying that that happens immediately. I'm not saying that you say any magic words out loud and all of a sudden you become incapable of sin. But it's really important we ask ourselves, do we even recognize our own sin. When we do stumble, when we do fall short, when we do mess up, do we even feel any conviction? And if you can't honestly say yes, then the question again that you should be asking yourself is, have I ever repented? You see, the crowds that came to John after they repented, they would then make public their acknowledgement of their failure. They would demonstrate this internal change of heart through the cleansing water of baptism. And again, thus we call John the Baptist, not John the preacher. Again, John the Baptist does have a nicer ring to it, though, so I get it. The baptisms also that John were performing 
they were a little different. Baptism was practiced a little bit differently, or, or I guess what I should say is it was practiced for different reasons at the time that John was preaching in the wild. It's important we know that, that baptism by immersion was something that was practiced in Judaism long before John, right? This wasn't an idea he came up with. It wasn't something uh, that he woke up one morning and the Holy Spirit told him that you should baptize people in this way. Baptism by immersion is something that existed within Judaism. Now, what was different about John's baptism, what, the, the previous form, the way it was practiced, is when someone was leaving a pagan culture and wanted to join into Judaism, they would be baptized in a, a ritualistic type of cleansing. right? This, this imagery showing that they're leaving the old behind and that they're now joining Judaism. But what was really different that John was doing compared to what people were used to at the time is John was not calling people out of pagan cultures and inviting them into Judaism. John was calling those who were born Jews. Right, John, as he blazed a path for what was to come, he, he, re, he preached repentance and a one-time baptism to God's own chosen people. And the message that he preached, again, was supported by his actions. Right, he, he preached this message that, that your relationship with God, your status with God, it has nothing to do with your ancestry. Maybe another way of saying it is that his, your ancestry is not adequate enough to ensure that you have a relationship with God. We heard Jason uh, say this a few weeks back at his daughter's baptism, if you were with us. He made this point, and it's very true. He said, God has no grandchildren, only children. Your parents' or your grandparents' religious affiliations have never been and they never will serve as a substitute for your own personal relationship with God. Right, this is why at Meadowbrook you won't see us baptize babies or infants and, and then present them as being made clean. Because it's just it's not the way that this works. I mean, unfortunately, it would be nice if it did, but we don't get to make the decision for the next generation who's coming up behind us. It's only a decision that they can make, that they can decide if they are willing to yield to God's will in their life. That they get to decide, will I confess that Jesus is Lord? They get to decide if they will repent. Uh, Matthew next records for us that, that John had some important visitors come out and see him one day. Right, The people of Jerusalem, they started to talk. People were coming home from the Jordan River and telling their friends and family, you've got to come see this guy. You have to come hear his message, this, this word that he's bringing about the kingdom of God. Right? They were excited. They told everyone they knew. And as news spread among the people, it, it drew the attention of those who kind of fancied themselves, maybe like the reindeer, as the protectors of God's law. When Matthew continues in verse 7 through 12, it says this, it says, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. 
His winnowing fork is in hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. A whole lot goes on here and a whole lot more in this passage than we'll be able to unpack in what we have left of our service time together here. But here's what we should hear. We should hear John's warning that he gives to these Pharisees, and we should take it to heart. Isn't it so interesting? The men who finally show up that have the best education, the men who have the nicest clothes, the men who come from the proper breed, the proper stock, the proper lineage, when they show up, John is harsh with them. The insult that he gives them is obvious as he calls them this this brood of vipers, this den of snakes. But if we look past the obvious insult, what was John's message to these men? If we look past the insult of calling them a den of vipers, his message to them was the same as it was to everyone else. Confess, repent, and be baptized. Admittedly, John's tone is much much more harsh. Admittedly, we can see that John is not a fan of these men. He's not a fan of why they are here at his sermon. He's not a fan of what they represent and what they have done. But even though the offer may come through gritted teeth, the offer that he gives them is no different than it is to anyone else who would show up and hear his message that day. We look at verse 8, just the six words there, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I mean, again, we may imagine him, him shouting this at them, but in truth, what is he doing? He's pleading with them. He says, guys, don't assume that just because you are an Israelite, Don't assume that just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham that you are exempt. He says, repent now. And don't repent just in word, but repent in deed. He says, you have to bear fruit. He says, true repentance, a true, authentic, internal change will always lead to external examples of that internal change. And John reminds them, he says, guys, I'm not the one you have to worry about. I'm not the main event. He says, I'm just the one who's guiding the sleigh through the fog. Right? Just like in the Christmas movies, we never see a little kid wake up on Christmas morning and excitedly shout, Mom, Dad, Rudolph was here. No. Right? Santa gets top billing. And, and John admits and knows here that he does not bring salvation. But he says, coming right behind me is the one who will. He says, coming right behind me is the one whose name that generation and generation and generation of people will excitedly exclaim as their Lord and as their Savior. You see, John's baptisms were a foreshadowing to the Christian baptisms that we practice today. Again, the the imagery of the resurrection that we see in baptism, maybe that was not directly yet connected to John's work as Christ had not yet died, Christ had not yet resurrected, but the commonalities are nonetheless important. John preached a message that no matter who you are, that no matter where you came from, no matter what you have done, that you must confess that Jesus is Lord, you must repent, you must be baptized. And he also threw in there that you must bear fruit. I hope that sounds familiar to you if you worship with us here at Meadowbrook often. But if you are newer here, 
right? If, if perhaps you've, you've only joined us a few times, and maybe you've been here and you've witnessed a baptism before, perhaps you, you've asked yourself, what is that all about? I don't get it. So in an effort just to make it as clear as I possibly can for you of, of what baptism is and why we do it, how we do it, I'll, I'll try to make it easy. Let's start by this. God's word, the Bible tells us that salvation is a free gift. God's word tells us that we are saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Our, our belief that he is the son of God, that he was crucified for our sins, and that he did resurrect, that he defeated death. Right? We believe that, that the Bible tells us that the blood of Jesus is the only thing that saves us from an eternal separation from God. You may call that hell. That there is no other way to the Father, no other way to God, other than through Jesus Christ. So we must confess this. Right? We, we must humbly admit to ourselves that we are not enough. We, we have to be able to admit that we cannot save, our, save ourselves. That we can never be worthy of standing in the presence of a sinless God based on any of our achievements. We confess that we are sinners... And we confess that Jesus is Lord. And then we repent, which, which again, it means that physically we turn away from our sin, right? Internally and outwardly, we oppose sin. We continue to pursue the, this sanctification. And, and as we are trying to be more like Christ, we don't view it as a chore. It's not something that we are bummed out about that we have to do. Sanctification should become our deepest desire. And when we call upon the name of Jesus as Lord, out of obedience, we are to be baptized. And it's important, baptism should never be viewed as a work that is necessary to earn your salvation. How it should be viewed, it's the act of reaching out and saying, yes, Lord, I want this gift. I accept this gift. It's saying, God, I am yours, my life is yours, and my future is in your hands. And it's my belief that, that we're called to this act of baptism. It's not after we've achieved some, some spiritual status. right? It's not when we've memorized X percentage of the Bible. right? What we see in God's word is that we are called to baptism when we make the confession that Christ is Lord. When we repent, when we finally allow our sin to break our heart. In that moment where our faith becomes ours and it's no longer about our community or our country or our family affiliations... When this happens, we get into the water, we are buried, and we are resurrected with Christ. If you've not done this yet, uh, I'd be amiss if I did not make the offer to join us today. The baptismal, as Matt mentioned earlier, is already warm. It was almost 90 degrees, believe it or not, when I got here this morning. We have two women who have decided that they want to take this step and call Jesus their Lord and their Savior this morning. Right? We're already getting wet. It would not take much more to add another three or four or five of y'all that wanted to jump in as well. Let's do it. <laughs> Church, from the bottom of my heart, Merry Christmas. Let's pray.